called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam, and today I am very happy to have with us uh, Jared. And I, I'm going to, Jared, I'm going to let you explain why I have you here today. Your background, you were with uh, Biden's administration, and you're an economic advisor, and you know a little bit about the economy. And I like to think so, <laughs> although uh, every month I'm wondering. Uh, but yeah, I worked for the Obama administration. I was the vice president's chief economist uh, during, by the way, the uh, the Great Recession, during the downturn. In fact, by the way, uh, uh, this Tuesday, uh, the, uh, the 19th, is the 10th anniversary of the Recovery Act. So just think kind of an interesting that's, day. That's, I can't believe it's been 10 years. I know. How about that? My God, it has been 10 years. <laughs> Feb- that was so. February 2009. That act passed less than four weeks after the administration was in office. It's actually when Congress could get stuff done. Yeah, when they actually worked together. So, uh, Mr. Bernstein, I'm going to just uh, ask the question. Is the United States of America a socialistic country? Uh, and I'm just going to answer the question, no. Okay. No, no, no. And are there any... It is a capitalist country. It always has been. In my lifetime, I'm sure it always will be. Uh, Now, every economy, particularly every advanced economy, uh, so I'm thinking of the United States, Europe, these days, even China to some degree, exists on a continuum with pure markets on one end and pure government on the other end. There's no... Uh, economy you can find that is at one extreme end of the continuum. Right. All the economies are are are, are at uh, a, a, on on that line somewhere, and I've been thinking about trying to think of intuitive ways to figure out where we place ourselves. And I think one way is to look at the share of GDP that we spend on social programs. In this country, it's about 20%. Uh, if you look, line up all the countries, that puts us actually, I think, in between the Czech Republic and, and, <laughs> and, and Bosnia or something like that. In other words, it's not at the, uh, at the Scandinavian end of the continuum where that 20% is more like 40, 50, or 60%. So by that one simple metric, uh, we actually locate fairly close to markets on that continuum. But so when people say there are socialist programs mm-hmm. in the United States, Social Security, uh, fire departments, police departments, the military, accurate? Yes, accurate in, in the sense that uh, there are uh, numerous institutions, programs, policies in our economy that – Uh, where the government plays a role that the market doesn't play. So let's take, you mentioned, I think you mentioned Social Security. You can say the same thing about Medicare. When people age out of their working years, there's really no market mechanism that can keep income in their pockets. Now, if they saved enough during those years, they could have uh, uh, that that they could they could live off uh, off of their savings at least there theoretically. But what if yeah, they theoretically? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but realistically, what, realistically. But what if they didn't? By the way, there's a, a Federal Reserve statistic that oh, came, came to mind in this part of the discussion, which is um, 
Uh, 40% of households uh, find that they could not come up with $400 to meet an emergency without borrowing it or selling something. And uh, to further underscore that point, remember during the shutdown, these are people with middle-class jobs, and in a couple of weeks of not getting a paycheck, they were going to food pantries. So theoretically, people could save enough to have uh, annuities in their retirement, but a lot of people can't. I mean, it's just right. understood. So that's why we have a Social Security program, which is social insurance. Same thing with health care, um, health care, uh, like through Medicare. So when people say, all right, I guess what I'm looking for is a definition of terms. We're not no one is a pure anything, but these right. are socialist programs. We all gather our our goods and services together and and spread them out to people to help them out. Yeah, I don't. I mean, is that fair to say? No, I guess I, I would I would say not in the following sense. They're not socialist program. <clears throat> Uh, one thing. Sorry, Are go you going to edit, by the way? Well, Sorry. I usually don't edit, but I'll edit, uh -huh. I'll, I'll edit, edit that, a cough out yeah. <laughs> if you want. <clears throat> um, they're not socialist programs in the sense that they're not programs that exist in a socialist economy. We have a largely capitalist economy. So in this blend of, of government and markets, there are some economic functions that the markets do and other functions that, that the government, government does. And, and, and so these are government functions. Social insurance is a government function that exists in every economy, advanced or otherwise. So the reason I guess I would object to calling these socialist programs is, is because it, it has, makes it makes it sound like the government is socialist when it's well, not. No, no, and, and I'm not going there. That's not, not that. But strictly speaking, by definition, isn't it by definition we all are all paying into something, and and then socially we all reap the rewards yes, of it. Yes, if you want to put it that yeah, way, if, mean, that, if that's if, just the dictionary. That's not, that's definition. not socialism. No, that's no. that's actually redistributive policy, right. and redistributive policy is is a very common characteristics, certainly of some socialist economies, but also of many capitalist economies. So you can find socialist economies, that they really call themselves socialism, where they massively redistribute. Instead of 20% of, of uh, GDP, which is what I described, right. you can get up to 70 or 80%. Now I think you're really talking about a socialist economy. Um, but you can also find, by the way, so-called socialist economies, like Venezuela right now, where people get very, very little uh, from right. the government. That's but that's true of that. That does not just necessarily a socialist government. I mean, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, I, that USSR. Exactly. Was, now these. So that was a you know a, a communist government. And then there was and, Nazi Germany, and then there was Italy, and so in a communist in a more communist regime, you have the government actually owning the private sector, what, what here we are have called private sector, quote, right. means of production, you know, uh, and, and this is the idea that that factories and stores, you know, walk down the street here, you're going to pass, um, you know, a, a every block, you're going to pass tons of private establishments. So there are, a, a, one can imagine an economy where all those private establishments were owned in a communist uh, system by the government. That's not the case uh, uh, here at all. And in fact, I do think that's a useful distinction um, oh, yeah, and there. something that makes us very much not a socialist economy that the vast majority of uh, of commerce is owned by the private sector right and the private sector participates with the government i mean we make all right so your private sector bids on government contracts well that's another good point yeah so so, so now we, we we do about 
we do about half a trillion a year, 500 billion, which is about two and a half percent of GDP in government contracts. <clears throat> and who's doing that? It's private sector firms. Now, are those private firms or public firms? Is that socialism or capitalism? When, right. When, when Boeing, you know, when Boeing, <laughs> which is a, a private firm, has... I mean, when I worked in the White House, I couldn't turn the corner without running into somebody from Boeing. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, so, and so is that a private firm? Is it a public firm? Is it, uh, they get a lot of support from the government. Right. Like guaranteed loans. The Export-Import Bank helps them. So, so it, it's, it's just there's a lot of gray here. And so when the president says, I want to go to a couple things, and, and I appreciate the definition in terms, I think everyone confuses them, and they think that we're – uh, a pure capitalist, or a pure, or there's, or, and socialist has such a negative connotation that even social programs is that true? I, I mean, I, 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 I certainly get it. People I, have shown me some polls lately that, especially with younger people, the word socialism actually has a more positive connotation than you might think. I think you're right there. I think with younger people, yeah. but when I try to talk to anyone, and and you mentioned that word, and my age group, uh, younger, but millennials are different, I guess. No, not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not, <laughs> not dissing millennials. But there is this connotation that, um, and, and the president makes it, when he says we are free, we were born free, we're raised free, we'd never want to be Venezuela. And so there's that connotation there that it's... I mean, the, the president is scaremongering. He's trying to cash in on this idea that if you call something socialism, you'll scare a lot of people off of it. But in fact, as I said earlier, uh, Brian, socialism um, in, in, in that context is trying to suggest that we're going to take the privately owned means of producing and we're going to you know, put them under the public umbrella. We are not going to do that. And never will. And, and probably never will. It also, I think, means that we're going to redistribute a great deal of income from the wealthy to the middle class and the poor. Well, in fact, if you look at the redistribution under the Trump administration, it's actually gone the other way. It's gone up. And, and so what I hear going on here is actually very interesting. Uh, I think the philosophy of the Trump administration is basically socialism for the rich, capitalism for everybody else. And, wow. Uh, yeah. The idea is that they will redistribute income up the scale largely to meet the needs and the, the desires of their donor base that helped put them there in the first place. So when you see them putting a $2 trillion tax bill on the deficit, that's a 10-year cost as per the Congressional Budget Office, that you know, massively tilts its benefits to corporations, uh, wealthy shareholders, people with, with estates. Um, you can imagine that when Democrats like Senator Elizabeth Warren, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, start talking about a very different uh, direction of redistribution, going the other way, taxing right. wealth, they get really nervous and they start throwing out these names, you know, socialism and the fear mongering, Venezuela. And, and it's just it's just a political ploy. It, it doesn't relate to reality. So you think it's to assist the rich and to the detriment of the poor? I think that some of these Democratic politicians are on to their game. And I think that the defenders of the status quo who want to continue to maintain the, the, the upward redistribution of their socialism for the rich get very nervous when they start hearing people call it you know, for what, what it is. Which is? 
uh, upward, a, a, a program of upward redistribution um, and, and, and one that is geared at uh, uh, blocking uh, the, the redistribution in the other direction. Let me give you a great example. Yeah. The tax cut, as I mentioned, tilts the vast majority of its benefits to the top of the scale. This is not uh, this is not a sort of an ideological thing. There are statistics from the Tax Policy Center. From I know you like the numbers, and I appreciate yeah, that's one I of appreciate one of your numbers. great attributes. The Tax <laughs> Policy Center, the Congressional Budget Office, uh, will show you that, for example, you know the uh, the average income of the top one percent goes up about three percent through the tax cut. For the middle fifth, it's one point three percent. For the bottom fifth, it's less than half a percent. So the tax cut yields. Uh, gains that are, are seven times those for the top 1% than they are for the bottom fifth. Okay, so you got that. That's point one. It's an upward, it exacerbates inequality. It's upward redistribution. Point two uh, is that it, uh, it, it, it makes the deficit a lot larger, $2 trillion of added debt over 10 years. So what do the Repub Republicans do? They go to Congress. So this is key to understanding what I'm trying to explain right. here. The Republicans go to Congress and they say, Look at those rising deficits. This is after the tax cut. Their fingerprints are all over the tax right. cut. Look at those rising deficits. We have to cut Social Security, Medicare, and programs for the poor. Ah, now you're talking about Mitch McConnell. This is a, yes, <laughs> but this is a very concentrated, I think very um, t uh, poignant, revealing example of upward redistribution of the resources of our economy paid for by blocking and cutting downward redistribution through social insurance and safety net programs. When we talk about the Trump administration, and I'll, I'd like to get into his claims that the economy has never been better, that he's responsible for it, they've exploded the deficit. Is that, are the chickens going to come home to roost there, A? And B, uh, who is responsible for our economy? We do have low uh, uh, we right do. now. It, it's four percent, four percent unemployment, mm -hmm. yep. and um, actually getting some real wage gains. Finally, uh, pretty you know moderate, but they're they're there. They're real. They're they're good to see. Um, you know, the question is of, of of who is responsible for an economy is actually um, probably unanswerable because. You know, well, he's claiming it. Yes, and I must say, I is mean, is that fair? It's not fair, but he. But also, let me say, in, in fairness to Trump, yes, um, every president would do that. Of course, you know, they they all take yeah they all, they all <laughs> they all take credit for a good economy and try to defer blame for a bad one. You know that <laughs> to the other party, yeah, usually yeah, to the other party. If it's going down, it ain't my fault. Yeah. If it's going up, the guy that's before me. me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so we have this system of you know, 320 million people who are all participating in this economy and it is a ver it is in normal times really a virtuous cycle and in fact our capitalist economy is a, in many ways an excellent system uh, for this very reason it's a self-perpetuating system wherein uh, wherein strong uh, labor demand low unemployment creates jobs for the hundred plus million households out there folks take their paychecks they go out and purchase stuff that they want and need that cycles back into the system and creates more demand and uh, you're, you know you're off and running and the, the this kind of uh, business cycle cir uh, circular function 
uh, just keeps working until something breaks and then you have a recession. It could be a shock on, quote, the supply side, like oil prices go way up, or it could be uh, overheating, which is, by the way, one of the things you might worry about if you in start, this economy, if right. you start um, doing a lot of deficit spending when you're already kind of closing in on full employment, you can end up just generating more inflation. Uh, but we're not there yet. Um, and so Trump, if you actually just look at the trends and all the key variables, employment, right. you, t you take the employment uh, uh, series and you just kind of plot it out, draw a straight line from where it was going to where it went after he came into office, he's right on that trend line. It hasn't gone up, it hasn't gone down. Um, on GDP, he actually has boosted things a bit because of the, the tax cuts really did stimulate economic growth in 2018 and 19, but that's fading. And you can already start to see some of the fade. The predictions for uh, growth this quarter are now coming down to around 2%. Kudlow says we're going to see 3%. Uh, Hayset well, says we're going to see 3%. They're, yeah, they're convinced. I, yes, because uh, they, you know, they, they, they not only work for the administration, but their budgets kind of depend on that. These are the folks who said the tax cut would pay for itself when we're already seeing budget deficits of four going up to 5% of GDP, historically very large. Um, you can't find, I mean, you really can't find somebody who um, isn't being paid to say, <laughs> to say right. that, that the tax cut's going to pay for itself. And my question, when I talk to those people, now I, I'm not the economist, but I remember the demand curve slopes down. Mm -hmm. they, and demand drives the economy and supply, but they're telling me the supply well, so drives the demand. If we've got a big supply there, then we'll well, there is, drive demand. No, no, there, there is, uh, there is a theory to their case. It's not uh, a, an accurate theory. It's not one that oh, the, I'm aware of the theory, but yeah, <laughs> no, but but no, the theory to their case goes like this: um, there are two factors that 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 um, add to uh, add up to uh, GDP growth. That's Productivity growth plus labor force growth. So productivity growth right now is around you know one percent. Labor force growth has been around you know one one and a half percent. And so then you get to our trend growth rate that's two two and a half percent. And 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 that is true. I mean that's just arithmetic. And what they're arguing is that the tax cut will increase labor supply and increase productivity, and therefore will speed up the growth rate. And uh, the 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 reason it's wrong is not because that arithmetic is wrong. It's that we've never seen an example of a tax cut that's had anything like the magnitude of the effects they're uh, touting for productivity or for labor yeah, supply. Yeah, didn't Reagan tout the same thing? Wasn't of course. That, that, this is supply-side economics. This is supply-side economics. This is the, the, what, what George Bush called voodoo economics. Right, and it's voodoo economics in the sense that there's no empirical evidence that these tax cuts boost the supply side of the economy, either through the productivity or the labor supply channel. But they take it a step further, which is even more wrong, which is they say it's supply-side trickle-down. It's not Ugh. just that the supply-side of the economy is going to massively expand so that the tax cuts pay for themselves and we see these really impressive growth rates. That hasn't happened. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's certainly not happening in real time now. Uh, but then they say that's that's going to trickle down and benefit middle class and poor people. Ah, the old Ronald Reagan tinkle down theory. The tinkle down. <laughs> yeah, there, we're just not getting the tinkle there. Is, uh, well, that's, in, in, doesn't that go to the socialism above and the that's my capitalism whole point. below? You, you, sell, you sell these programs on the basis of helping low-income people, when actually they're directly helping the wealthy. And then when the deficit swells, you talk about we're going to have to pay for them by cutting support for low-income people. It's socialism for the rich and capitalism for everybody else. You can cut taxes for rich people, 
and cut benefits for poor people. Wow. And so is this exploding deficit going to come back and bite us in our ass? It certainly is potentially. Because uh, uh, they're telling us, like, hey, and, and um, uh, Cutlow tell us, and, and have said it often, that the 3% growth will take care of the deficit. Right. That's so, how we're going to pay so, for okay, it. So the, the deficit question is actually a little more complicated, and I'll speak to that. What's not at all complicated is the contention that the tax cuts will pay for themselves. And if you listen to Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, they'll more, ah. they'll more than pay for themselves. They'll pay for themselves, and they'll actually draw down the debt. Right. And in fact, the opposite is happening, and it's going to continue to happen. Typically, at this stage in recovery, we should be collecting, the Treasury should be collecting 18.5% of GDP and revenue. That's the historical revenue collection when we've right. had such low unemployment, because there's a linkage between strong economies and Treasury flows. They've broken that link. And right now we're collecting 16.5% of revenue. That's two percentage points below where we should be, which is $420 billion in today's GDP. Well, that would more than pay for his wall. <laughs> <laughs> you could build a boatload of walls. <laughs> um, and, and so, and so the, the first, so that they're not going to pay for themselves, so the deficit. So the, the, the thing about the budget deficit is that for years, there's something that the Trump folks have sort of um, mistakenly gotten right about this. <laughs> and they got something right a, by yeah, mistake? A, a stopped clock is right twice a day. Yeah, I don't know true. if that works in the digital age, but that, that used to work, <laughs> that analogy. Um, the, uh, the, and that's the, the, the idea that if you have a large budget deficit, even in a strong economy, economists traditionally thought that that would lead to pretty serious overheating pretty quickly. You'd get right. a lot of inflation and you get interest rates would be pushed way up because the public sector was borrowing scarce dollars that the private sector couldn't then get without higher interest rates. So you'd have public borrowing crowding out private borrowing, putting upward pressure on interest rates and inflation. We have not seen that for 20 years. And so this notion that... Uh, deficits are going to just, uh, you know, kind of immediately explode and, and crush you through those channels is uh, shown to be false. That doesn't mean... That's one of Trump's arguments. Well, that, and, and he's right about that. But it doesn't mean that that's always the case. That's going to be the case going forward. Uh, you certainly could have an overheating scenario. But there are other reasons to worry about the budget deficit. One is that there is a recession out there somewhere. Uh, actually, in the last few days, uh, the data have turned uh, kind of a little soft. Now, I think these are just kind of uh, one-offs. Uh, a lot of these data are noisy, high-frequency data. But there's a recession out there somewhere. Let me just leave it at that. And do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah, like That's right. It's like the, the shark. You don't know where it is, but eventually it, it will bite you in the you-know-what. And, uh, and at that point, if you enter your deficit, with a debt-to-GDP ratio as high as ours is going to be, you're not going to do enough to offset it because you won't have the fiscal space. At least you won't think you have the, the fiscal space to do enough about it. So one thing to worry about a deficit is we're, we're going to go into the next deficit with our debt-to-GDP ratio of about 80%. Typically, we've gone into it with a ratio of somewhere between 30 and 40%. So that's kind of scary. That, so that's scary. I think that the fiscal authorities— What would the effect of that be? The fiscal authorities will not do enough— counter-cyclical spending, uh, a Keynesian nature, to offset the next recession because they'll, well, they won't have enough perceived fiscal space to do so. We'll go into the recession, to be very pragmatic about it, we'll go into the recession and somebody will say, we need to extend unemployment insurance, and a bunch of politicians are going to point to the debt and say, we can't because our debt is too high. So the one, one, one caution is that you shouldn't go into a recession with such high debt levels. The other 
is that uh, when you have a very high stock of debt like we do, it's actually, people say, 22 uh, trillion. That's not accurate. A lot of that is money the government owes to itself. Uh, right. the, the stock of debt is about 16, 16 and a half trillion. That ain't nothing. And that means that for every you know, point that the interest rate goes up, you have that much more interest to pay. And that's money, you know, that's tax revenues you can't spend on other things. You have to pay pay higher interest payments. And then also, like, there's a lot of very ambitious Democrats uh, with, like, big ideas from climate things to job guarantees, free college, all these, all these progressive ideas. They're just much harder to pay for when you're looking at a yawning budget deficit than when you're not. Well, if you had that 18% instead of 16.5%, you might be able to fund some of that well, stuff. Well, that's exactly right. By breaking that mechanism between a strong economy and those revenue flows, you don't have the resources you need. And by the way, this is not an accident. This is a strategy. Shrink the government, and you won't be able to really do the stuff that the Democrats. But what are they shrinking? That's the, the, it's social programs. It's um, infrastructure. They're not shrinking the. They're not shrinking the military. Well, in fact, I mean, one of the... Are they? Well, but, so here's the interesting thing. I mean, this lay is, it on me, brother. Yeah, no, here's the interesting... I'm going to lay this on you. Here's the interesting thing. The theory of the case, you know, this is the, uh, the, the idea that you starve the beast. Right? right. Cut tax revenues and government will shrink. Newsflash, the beast eats deficits. <laughs> <laughs> So, I had a date like that once. <laughs> okay, that's a hey different, now. different that's podcast. The beast, uh, the beast eats. Uh, the beast eats, eats deficits. deficits. So uh, you're not really shrinking much at all on the spending side. You're just shrinking your revenues. And the difference between revenues and spending is the deficit. And the reason we have such a high deficit is because our spending is actually, I just looked at this number. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers that's at right. our audience, but, but you like that. Uh, these are facts. I, mean, I like facts. As a White House reporter, you don't hear enough of that. I don't I'm get sure. any of them. Yeah, you don't get any of them. These are facts that you could go to the- Well, I'll say this much. In When I do talk to Kudlow or Mnuchin or Hayson and those guys, they have they do have a theory. They do have, I, I, I don't buy what they're selling all the time because they are selling me supply side economics and I'm old enough to remember those. But they do have a set of facts that they use that are common to all of us. Yes. I mean, Kudlow is an old friend of mine. Hassett is someone I've written papers with. I know these people. He's always smiling, that guy. Larry? He, oh, he's always Which smiling. Hassett? Hassett. He's, Hassett? Always, he's always smiling. I've hmm. never seen that guy not smile. Which is fine. Hmm. I like seeing that. But, yeah. But he, they, he has done some things lately that have made me not smile. But, uh, well, that's he's done different. a lot of things that have made me not smile. <laughs> but at any rate. Uh, but they uh, do have facts that they use. I think that, you know, on a, on a, on a good day that, you know, Kevin and Larry really can explain what they're up to in a way that is coherent until you actually look at the empirical evidence. There you go. And that's the big thing. So that's like, where I'm going. You no, know, that's yeah. right. So, so you know, Larry has a, a theory of the case that if you cut taxes, you'll generate enough economic activity to offset their cost. But that's uh, never happened. Correct. So that's my point, is that I've, I've literally argued. I told you he's a friend of mine. Yeah. I've, I've literally argued with him for 40 years on this, and I can't move him at all. So at that point, I think you're an ideologist, he, or it's a religion or something. It's not It's not about economics. Does he recognize facts? I mean, does he? Not, um, not on uh, issues like that, which he has just decided their outcomes with no regard to the facts. And that's very problematic. How do you do that? How do, 
how do you do that? I don't understand. That's to me. That's just it. it if you can't, maybe recognize- that's why they're always smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what scary. Me worry. Too. Yeah, what me? Yeah, it's the Alfred E. Newman School of you know economics. What me worry? I've got mine. You get yours. I think the uh, the old adage is uh, you know where you stand in Washington has a lot to do with where you sit. So if you're in the, if you're in the government selling these programs, the data aren't your friend right now. No. Where do you, uh, let's look down the road uh, with an economic crystal ball in five years. Where do you see us? Uh, I think that that depends on uh, political outcomes. Uh, I think that there could be a kind of a snapback, a reaction, uh, maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, to this very deep dysfunctionality where we have a government that can neither diagnose what's wrong or prescribe fixes for it. And this is particularly egregious in the Trump era because he diagnoses things that aren't wrong and prescribes fixes for them that, that uh, won't work. That won't work. So the the immigration and the border is the best example. Basically, based on a campaign slogan that gets a lot of his base cheering, he's going to spend, you know, some numerous billions of dollars on uh, on 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 uh, a wasteful program that 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 corresponds not at all to the actual flows of immigration, to the violence at the border. Uh, There's just a huge disconnect between the facts of the case and the policy. So I think there are um, a, a fairly significant chunk of the electorate who are motivated by two things. One, the idea that we really can't keep going forward with such dysfunctionality. And two, that the government is extremely non-representative, that it's not representing the needs and wants of the majority of the electorate uh, who is kind of sussing out this capitalism for the for, for, for the middle class and poor and socialism for the rich and uh, starting to figure out that we need a, you know, a very different approach that represents both their needs and that could meet some of the existential challenges we face like climate change. So one path takes us down a rejection, down a path that's a massive rejection of the current, uh, I would argue, dysfunction. Another path (laughs) doesn't. And so that would be a much, from my perspective, a much darker outcome. Well, for the average person that you, we talked about earlier in this podcast, who can't come up with $400 when they need it for an emergency, let's talk about where how they are going to be affected. They are not going to care about the policy. They're going to care. Do we go through another great recession? It, do the, in the, so to just ask that question, do the policies of today portend that kind of uh, problem in the future? So that's a really great point. And I actually think that that's a much better framework for thinking about how a lot of folks are going to be evaluating uh, the, the, the government, uh, because that's where the rubber meets the road for them, as opposed to those of us who pour over the, the, right, the, the policy numbers. sheets every day in the numbers. Uh, it depends on the depth of the next recession. Remember, the Great Recession was a function of a massive housing bubble and a, uh, inflated by a financial market that just went off the rich. And they coddled the rich and the, and the banks, and they, that all those chickens came home to roost. So, it all blew up in our face. Yes, and it led to you know a, a, a situation where, where we lost million, literally millions of jobs. I mean, we had months... Right now, a good good month is we had a couple hundred thousand jobs. We had months where we were losing 750,000 jobs. So if we have a recession of that depth, 
We are, as I said earlier in our discussion, uh, singularly unprepared for that, and that all of this government dysfunction will come home to roost. And the average person that you're describing who has trouble coming up with 400 bucks to, to meet uh, an emergency will be uh, in, in really tough shape and will be forced to look at a government that was uh, caught completely flat-footed. Now, if the recession is relatively mild and Congress does some deficit spending, it might not be uh, that bad. But so that, that's unknowable at this point. That is unknowable. But do the policies of today cause you to be concerned about that type of recession? Do the policies today, in other words, portend hazards ahead? Or can we muddle through this and go, all right, look, we're going to end up with a a, a recession, but it's not going to be that bad. He hasn't screwed up things that much. Uh, the policies of today make me very worried that the public sector, the government, and not just at, by the way, the federal level, some states are unprepared, will not be able to deal with a recession of any depth. It is the case that when I look out there in the world uh, of, of, uh, of economics, I don't see a large bubble forming in credit markets, you know, the way we had a housing right, bubble. Right. I don't see uh, a lot of reckless finance generating um, underpriced risks so that systematically people are getting way in over their heads. There's some of that, no question. But I don't see a scenario that looks as bad as it did um, at the end of the last expansion before the Great uh, Recession. However, that said, what I worry about in terms of, of, of this government, Trump, and, and has to do more with, with trade policy. And the idea that we are really uh, ignoring the wrenches that we're throwing into global trade flows and to tariffs, tariffs, um, these broad sweeping tariffs, the idea that we're you know trying to punish the Chinese economy as if these things aren't all interconnected. You know, Trump treats globalization as, as if he can sort of unscramble that omelet and you can't. So I think one, if I were looking to policy that might pose a real macroeconomic threat, right. it's, uh, it, it's the idea that we think we can sort of go it alone, build a bunch of right. walls. America can just say, you know, screw you kinda, to the rest of the world. like we did before World War II. Screw we, you, exactly. Yeah. The, 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 screw you Canada, screw you Mexico, screw you Germany, screw you EU, China. You know, all that, we're going to go it alone. No, the global economy is way too interconnected for that. And financial flows uh, and capital markets are, are, are interconnected. So if we really, uh, if we continue to ignore our connections uh, and the role that we play in, in global growth, that really could ding us, I think, in, in the next recession. Well, I will be honest with you. What scares me, what I see in those economic policies, the going it alone, the nationalism, all of that is frightening to me on, on levels I've never thought were possible. But it is, there is one common denominator between what I see now and what I saw w w with the bubble, and that is unchecked avarice and greed. And that, to me, and it, you talk about social, socialism above and capitalism below. Right. It's that combination that, to me, is frightening. 
and portends you know, trouble in the future. I, is I, that fair? Not only is it fair, but you're making me nervous over here. Because <laughs> I, I agree. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. And 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 so there's this word. I think the word is oligarchy. And this yes. is the this is the idea that you know that 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 your government is run you know by the rich and for the rich. And this is what you know Bernie and 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 Liz, uh, Elizabeth Warren mean when they say the economy is rigged. So let's break that down a little bit. What it means is that because we have this toxic combination of wealth concentration. Right now, 40% of all wealth is held by the top 1% in this country. Now, it, uh, if you go back... You know, I saw 30... a stat the other day. It was 8 or 15 of the top richest people in the U.S. own more than 150 million other people. Right. So if you go back, you know, 40, 50 years, instead of 40% of wealth held by the top 1%, it was half that, 20%. There's always been concentra concentration and inequality. That's part, but the excessive amounts. So so what? A lot of people own a bunch of wealth. What, what is deal. that? Big deal. Me? How does that hurt me? Well, we, all, we also have, among the advanced capitalistic economies, there's no other economy that has more money in politics, more pay-to-play politics. So where this meets the road is when the oligarchs can buy the politicians and the policies they want, then you end up with uh, tax cuts that lead to the revenue shortfall we have now that politicians are arguing, well, we should pay for them by cutting social insurance, benefits for the poor, and not being ready for the next downturn. So where that hurts you it's all kind of okay if the market is chugging along like it is right now. Where that hurts you is when the bottom falls out and the safety net is. So you you would be one of proponent of uh, public funded elections then. Uh, it, yes, I think I probably would. I haven't looked into that as deeply as I should. I would be a man. Because i got to tell you, it doesn't take a whole lot of money to buy a politician. They just don't stay bought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, that's the old Chicago problem, yeah, right? right. Like, just because you owned me last <laughs> week, like, where, where's my pay packet this week? I get it. Yeah. yeah. So, I, 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 look, I'm an economist who works on all the things we've talked about, getting money out of politics. There's there's people who know a lot more about that than me. But I do think it is it is a huge so part the of the economy, problem. Yeah, the, 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 the haves. See, that's and this is part of the economy that maybe you can explain and we'll end with that because we I could go on all day long with this and I know you have meetings to do but right. uh, it because it, it's fascinating to me I don't think people understand or seek to understand the economic factors that uh, that affect their life but so the question is in the haves versus the have-nots it always appears to me that the haves keep the have-nots fighting over things that don't matter while they keep running away with the money. Yeah, so this is a very old strategy of kind of strong-arm populace, of which you know Trump definitely is one, or at least does a, an impression of one, and that's to get your sort of natural opposition fighting within themselves. So you tell a working-class person who has been beset, whose economic fortunes have been damaged, not by Mexicans and people of color and whomever it is, you know, the other that you're pointing to right. and say, he or she, they're your problem, but by global trends that have taken manufacturing plants from their community and ship them to uh, other countries. That, that's globalization. That's not you know some racial group with whom you're competing. And when a politician comes forth and offers a solution to that that says, actually, we're going to bolster our manufacturing sector by investing in, uh, in, in that part of the economy, they say, well, we can't do that because we don't have the revenues because they gave them away in tax cuts. People start saying, well, why don't we have that? Well, why can't we have more 
programs like that. And then you say, well, it's the reason for that is because that African-American person over there took what's yours or that Mexican took what's yours. You get you that's get pure crap. Yeah, it is pure crap. And, and you get the you get the this potential voting block of working class people, of people of color, of people who have been uh, left out of the political process, who aren't being represented. You get them fighting with each other and you can just whistle all the way to the bank. <laughs> well, we'll end on that. We won't whistle to the bank. It, it, you, it's been a very sobering conversation, well, Jared. You, I appreciate yeah. it. I, and I'd like you to come back some other time. We can talk it about some other things. It would be my pleasure. Things. These are great issues. And, and great conversations to have. So we're not a socialist nation. we got to watch how we're spending our money. And it's socialists up top and capitalism down below. Thank you. That was a very crisp summary. <laughs> there you I go. appreciate it. Thank you very much. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam. Thanks for tuning in.